Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be talking about the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. This is sometimes called uh, the story of the two trees or the two prophets. And we're going to do just this chapter in this podcast. If you, if, you, if this is the first time you visited, you're going to want to go check out uh, the other podcasts that we've done in preparation for this one. Today, uh, we're going to do just this one chapter of Revelation 11. And so it starts off with the temple and two witnesses, and they're going to be called trees and candlesticks. And give us big picture, Bryce. Talk to us a little bit about why is this in here and, and what's the Lord trying to teach us here? This is where the revelation kind of takes a turn. So 8 9 was kind of the cleansing of the earth, the destruction imminent to the, the opening of the seventh seal. And now it's almost as if the Lord says, pause, let me give you some helps to make it through this. And I know he's probably describing literal events, but they're very symbolic. And he says, look, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to worry because the whole time you're going to have help. And so the next several chapters are kind of commentary on our day, no matter when you live. And don't worry about the future because I'm going to send you some help. So chapter 11 is all about the help we get in the form of prophets, seers, and revelators. The anointed ones who are sent by God to guide us and protect us and help us be preserved in whatever dangers we face in our day. So we're going to focus our attention on the servants that the Lord sends in our day to help us. Uh, prophets, seers, and revelators. And that becomes a major theme. Almost every time the Lord talks about the second coming, he seems to send the message, don't worry, you will always have my servants to guide you. I think sometimes this can be really sensational. You know, what a great title for a book. The two prophets slain in Jerusalem, and you could have some explosions Scary. on the cover. Yeah, and yeah. you could have all kinds of really sensational statements. And certainly the text does read like a Michael Bay film. Things are blowing up. There's lots of symbols. There's people getting wrecked, getting killed. And that is happening. So I like that big picture of, don't worry, it's going to be okay. The Lord's going to take care of us. I do want to talk a little bit about a word in here that really opens up the whole chapter. So I'm going to start in verse one. It says, there was given unto me a reed like a rod and the angel stood and said, rise, measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now, the forty and two months is six times seven. Six is going to be incomplete. Seven is going to be this idea of sanctification. And another thing that you can do with this forty-two months that John's going to do is he's going to show that the forty-two months is really three and a half years. So it's so also in verse 3 is 1,203 score days. All of this is Same three stuff. and a half years. So yeah. it's three and a half. Same stuff. It's a three period and a half, of... Three and a half years is 42 months or 1,260 days. Yeah, so it's like a period of, of chaos. There's going to be... It's not seven. Uh, there's going to be some things happening. The word I want to talk about is in verse 2, and the phrase in English is, it is given. And the Greek word is erothe, 
And that word is, for you language nerds, it's an aorist passive third person singular. So translation, it's passive. So it's being done to someone. It's being given. It is, edotheas, it is given unto him, third person singular. And why is that important? I think it's because the Lord is saying, yeah, I'm letting this happen. But it's already been decided beforehand. Aorist. It's happened in past tense. It has been given to them to do this. Now, another way to read verse 2 is like Bryce has talked about in, I think it was 3523 that you quoted where he says, all these things have been and shall be. How many times has the temple been given to the enemies of God? I mean, we could do this with Nephi. Um, that's the main question of the Old Testament is why did this happen? Um, this can also happen with 70 AD, right? When the temple was destroyed. And it seems to be, if, if the book of Revelation was written before the destruction of the temple, then Revelation has 11 has immediate application to these group, to these uh, groups of Jewish Christians. If it was written after Revelation 11, then it's clearly future. I think it could be read all those ways. But it is given, seems to lend itself to the idea that God is in charge. Just like we've been talking about this whole time, God is allowing these things to happen. And so what's going to happen? Well, verse 3, I'm going to give power to my witnesses. Now, Bryce, why don't you talk a little bit about the symbol of, you know, what they're symbolized as in verse 4. So let's go back. This is an, an allusion to the Old Testament that was very familiar to the Jews in John's day, not so familiar to the Latter-day Saints. So John says, again, I go back to that verse in Third Nephi that Mike just quoted. There's a scripture where Jesus is talking about the writings of Isaiah in Third Nephi 23. He says, everything that Isaiah wrote has been and shall be. And so one of the best ways to know what shall be is to realize what has been. And this is one of those. John is going to describe two events that are scary, but he's going to tie them to an event that has been. And so everyone who's familiar with the story will say, oh, you mean the second coming is going to be like that? Then I'm going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. So here he makes an allusion to two, and he calls them olive trees and candlesticks. Now, he may mean more, but let me take you to Zechariah chapter 4 in the Old Testament. Let me remind you that the Jews were taken into Babylonia for 70 some odd years. Meanwhile, all the people poured into the Holy Land and claimed it as their own. And then the Jews are sent back. Now, the first thing they have to do is build up the temple and build up Jerusalem. Now, Latter-day Saints should see in that one of the most symbolic moments of us. In other words, while, while we were, while the world was in apostasy and Satan gains control, and now we have been sent to this world to rebuild the kingdom that was once there. So the Jews rebuilding Jerusalem is kind of like the Latter-day Saints preparing for the second coming. We find a lot of connections there. It was very difficult and they faced many, many obstacles. And they were certainly frightened at many times. So in the middle of that, the Lord gives Zechariah a beautiful little image that I think calmed him and said, oh, everything's going to be okay. Tell us where you are. I'm in Zechariah chapter 4. Now, when the Jews were sent back from Jerusalem, they were given a political leader and a religious leader. Their political leader was Zerubbabel. 
he was the heir to the throne. So had the Babylonian captivity not ended the kings of Israel, Zechariah would have been the king. So he's kind of the political leader, and Joshua is the high priest. He's the religious leader. So those two, Zerubbabel and Joshua, were going to help restore Israel and rebuild up Jerusalem. But they faced so many obstacles, and it must have been, you know, frightening. So Zechariah has this vision. Zechariah chapter 4, he's awakened out of sleep, and he sees, and I picture this in a wilderness. I don't know if that's implied, but I have always pictured this in a wilderness setting. He's out in the wilderness, and he sees a candlestick with bowls and lamps and lights, vulnerable And this is the church. This is the church. And so many forces are trying to blow that light out. Here he is in the middle of the wilderness. And so many forces trying to blow this light out. But then all of a sudden he sees in verse 3, standing next to the candlestick are two olive trees. And they are pumping oil into the candlestick. And then Zechariah says, what is this? Who is this? And he goes on to say, verse 6, not, not by might, nor by power, but my, my spirit. Israel isn't going to conquer because we're bigger and stronger and tougher. Israel's going to conquer because we're led by the Holy Ghost. And then he says, I love verse 7. Who art thou, O Grout Mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain. Verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. Who are these trees? Verse 14, they are my anointed ones. And they stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So all you Latter-day Saints who are scared of the future and worried about what's going to come, the Lord says, here are my anointed ones. They are like candlestick, or they are like olive trees pumping oil into a candlestick. The light of that candle is not going to go out. They have a never ending source of fuel. And that's like the church in our day, a never ending source of fuel. And that all of the mountains that face us, all the obstacles, all of the wickedness, every obstacle that stands before Russell Nelson, who art thou? Oh, great mountain before Russell Nelson or his successor, you will become a plain. The hands of the prophets from Joseph on down, the hands of the prophets have begun this restoration and they will finish it. And we will be prepared for the coming of God and no one's going to stop us. Why? Because of the anointed ones. Because of the prophets. So this is an allusion to an Old Testament time where it seemed like there was no hope. There's no way we're going to win this victory. The enemy is too strong, too numerous. How could we possibly be victorious? Well, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. There is no mountain that will not become a plain before the prophets, seers, and revelators of God. And so we ought to just sit back and say, hey, everything's going to be okay. If that's what it's going to be like, if it's going to be like Zerubbabel and Joshua going back and rebuilding Jerusalem, we're going to be just fine. So there's the allusion to the anointed ones and the candlesticks and the olive trees. I like that. I also like the idea that a candlestick holds up the light. I like the idea that the candlesticks 
are many trees. There are many representations of the tree of life in, in Exodus. The lampstand is portrayed as a tree. And so there's all kinds of layers to this text. The tree, God, godliness, they're a portion of that tree. The mother tree is the olive tree. They're from the mother tree. They're from the olive tree. Uh, it's good. It's also, and maybe I'm reading into this because you know, you never know. Here's one way to look at it. But if you look in verse six of Revelation 11, it says they have power to shut heaven that it rained not in the days of their prophecy. And so who do we know that does that in the Old Testament? We got Elijah where he says, nope, we're not, we're not doing this. We're not going to have any rain. And so one way to read about these prophets, because they're going to be slain, but then they're going to stand up. In verse 12, the Lord is going to say, come up hither, and they're going to go up to heaven. And so in my mind's eye, I kind of see Elijah with his chariot where he says, peace out, world. Mic drop, I'm out of here, and he leaves. Now, the Bible doesn't do this, but tradition does, and the scriptures of the Restoration do. So I think this is a fair way to look at this. Uh, Moses doesn't die. I know that Deuteronomy kind of says, well, he died, and there's that line in there that says, you know, no man knoweth where his sepulcher is unto this day. But yet, uh, tradition says that, you know, maybe Moses didn't die. And then you get this re- strange reference in Jude, right? Where Michael comes from the heavens and he's got, uh, he's got Moses in a hand and then the adversary comes and grabs the other hand and they kind of have a tug of war. And that's not, not biblical in the sense of that whole story is not in the Bible. Jude's quoting it. He's quoting extra biblical literature, but Latter-day Saints, we get this out of Alma, right? I don't know where the verse is, but Bryce, you probably know there's a verse in Alma somewhere where the Alma pieces out and they're like, we think that maybe Alma was translated like Moses. And so these two prophets are kind of Moses slash Elijah types, and they do get killed. It says right there in verse seven that they get killed. The the beast that has that comes out of the bottomless pit makes war against them and overcomes and, and kills them. And it says that their dead bodies lie in the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, which is where our Lord was crucified. So John seems to tie this to a place to the city of Jerusalem. And there's three and a half again in verse nine, where their bodies lie in the streets for three and a half days, but then they stand up in verse 11. Now that's a beautiful scene. We got to see there's two scenes here when their bodies lie in the streets and the people are rejoicing over them and making merry and giving gifts. So there's a celebration of wickedness that the prophet is dead. And so I, I think there are moments in church history, there's moments, there's going to be moments in the future where it just seems like that, that the gospel's dead, that the prophet's dead, and that they cheer up. One of the headlines in one of the Illinois newspapers after Joseph Smith's martyrdom read, thus ends Mormonism. And they assumed that the prophet was dead and that Mormonism was dead. And I think there's going to be a moment, there's going to be moments in the future where it seems like goodness has died, that our cause is dead, that there's no way we can survive, that the church is dead, that the prophets are dead. And the world and the wickedness of the world are going to rejoice over those moments. But then when the two prophets rise up from the dead, can you just see that moment There is just an absolute silence here. Verse 11, after three and a half, after three days and a half, the spirit of life entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them, which saw them. That moment, the absolute awestruck, oh my gosh, how is this happening? That's the moment we need to see. Those who rejoice over our demise will have that moment. 
Those who rejoice over Joseph Smith's demise, all of those who were taking Joseph's name in vain and dragging him through the mud and rejoicing over all of the fallout will have that moment where all of a sudden they see who Joseph really was. I think that moment is to help them. I don't know how to express this, but I'm sure you've had this, Bryce, where you're talking with someone and they're railing against the truth. And there's that pause when you say something that's just, you know, it wasn't your words and you say it in just the right way and they have no response. It's just like, it's like that King Noah moment. There was a moment where Abinadi is like, yeah, you're not going to touch me. I'm going to finish this and like it or not, Noah, I'm going to say this and Noah can't do anything. And Jesus had those same moments where there were times when they just wanted Jesus to just shut up. And Jesus is like, nope, I'm going to say what I'm going to say. And that's what the, the future is going to be full of those. There will be moments where wickedness is dancing in the streets over what they think is our demise. But just hold on. Hold on, brothers and sisters, for that moment, because someday it will happen and they will rise from the ground. And then that absolute speechless sound, um, those moments are coming. We're led by prophets, seers, and revelators. There's a bunch of places in the Old Testament where it talks about when it comes to matters of life and death, there must be two witnesses. And then Paul repackages this in 1 Corinthians 13, or maybe it's 2 Corinthians 13. It's in there where he says, we're doing the same thing. We're sending them out two by two. I think these prophets are standing in this Old Testament tradition. There are two witnesses and they're saying, listen, what we're, what we're saying matters. And they're, they're preaching of truth typologically, and we're back to has been and shall be typologically, this happens in the book of Helaman. You have two different prophets in Helaman five verse 20 says that it's Nephi and Lehi and they go to the land of Nephi. A lot of times in the book of Mormon, the place where the Lamanites live is the land of Nephi. And I always tell jokes with my classes and I say, do you think the Lamanites called where they lived the land of Nephi? And you can bet your bottom dollar. They're not calling it the land of Nephi, which tells you that the person writing the text is a Nephi. It's clearly a Nephi. And so Nephi and Lehi go up to the land of Nephi. I just, I'm sorry. I just, I think that's funny. <laughs> so they, they go to the land of Nephi. And as soon as they get there in verse 21, they're cast into prison. So I'll post this chart in the show notes, but the chart's nice. But what you really should do, I would invite you to do this, is to read Helaman 5. And if you read Helaman 5, it's not an exact replica of Revelation 11, but boy, is it close. They're in prison. Um, they're about to be killed. People are celebrating. Their enemies are excited. And then there's some shaking. And their enemies have fear. And they hear a voice from heaven. And these two prophets, Nephi and Lehi, are lifted up. And they have the power of convincing. And there's darkness. And it's very dramatic. But the message is so good. I mean, I'm just, I'm just not doing it justice. Um, but... It's so good in Helaman 5 because I love where it talks about the voice. And we're back to that moment of silence. Look in verse 30 of Helaman 5. It says, it came to pass when they hear this voice. So there's been this earth shaking and um, they're standing there and there's light. And it says they heard this voice and it was not a voice of thunder, neither a voice of great tumultuous noise, but it was a still voice of perfect mildness as if it had been a whisper. I just want to testify that. For me, a lot of times that is moments of quiet when I first wake up or when I f go to bed at night and I, my mind's quieting or when I take the sacrament, I have moments where the Lord tells me that he lives. It's like when my wife tells me that she loves me, she could tell me that every day. Like I know she does, but man, I like to hear it. 
and I know that God lives, but I love when I, for me, it's the sacrament. I take the sacrament and almost every time I feel the spirit and it's, it's perfectly mild, but it's just this reminder where God says, Mike, I know you can't see me, but, but I'm real. And so Nephi and Lehi stand in this tradition of two witnesses. By the way, that reference was second Corinthians 13, one. And Deuteronomy 17, 6 is the money passage, matters of life and death, two witnesses. If you're a mom or a dad and you have a missionary out there, think about what that means. Think about what your son or daughter is doing. They're standing in the tradition of Revelation 11, of Deuteronomy, of all of what Paul's trying to say about preaching Christ. We're, we're, it's, a, it's a matter of life and death. And so I just love that. Yeah, it's before, so good. Yeah, before we leave Helaman 5, there's such a great connection between Helaman and Revelation and our day because Helaman is a pattern third Nephi is a pattern of the second coming and, and Helaman is a, uh, is a pattern of the days that precede because in the next few chapters a prophet sees through a secret combination he sees right through through a secret combination as if to say I'm going to send you prophets that will see through the secrets but to me one of the most symbolic moments in all of Helaman is chapter 5 verse 36 when they're in the prison and they're trying to destroy Alma or Nephi and Lehi and the, the the thick darkness comes. Look at verse 36 and tell me this isn't a symbol for every Latter-day Saint as we approach the future. No matter what darkness you're in, no matter what time period, it came to pass that he turned him about and behold, he saw through the cloud of darkness the faces of the prophets. Brothers and sisters, with all my soul I testify that you will always see through the darkness the faces of the prophets. The face of the prophet will shine through the darkness. There is nothing that's coming that we need to worry about because the face of the prophet, the faces of the prophets will shine through the darkness. They will always be there. They will guide us and direct us and have us prepared. And no matter what darkness you're in, the face of the prophet will shine through and you'll know where to go and what to do. You'll have a guide. You'll have someone guiding you in the darkness. The face of the prophet will always shine through. That's what revelation is about is the face of the prophet will always shine through the darkness. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.